We have been talking about characteristics of the blessed life as we work our way through some of the Psalms. And uh, today, we get a picture, a further picture of that life, what that life entails, and the price that was paid that we might have that life. So let me read for us Psalm 22 and read along with me if you would. And then we will jump in and uh, see what God has for us this morning. Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes the praise of the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Our psalm, it starts in a dark place, doesn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the things that the Jewish teachers would do during this time when they would sit down before their students and they would begin to unpack a text of scripture they would recite the first lines of where they were going to be that that session and immediately the students were trained to know okay this is where we're going to be we're going to be here and they would they would draw their minds to that section of scripture whatever they knew they would draw their minds to it in preparation for what the rabbi was going to teach them about it And here we have the Son of Man hanging on a cross. And he cries out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were there as a good Jewish person, and you heard this cry from the cross, your mind would have been drawn to this section of Scripture here that we have in Psalms 22. So let us draw our minds to this. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, drawing our attention to this particular psalm, he's saying, this is happening now. This is what's going on. I want you to, to consider this. This is what is, is being transpired here in this moment as I hang on this tree. It gives us a glimpse into the meaning of the cross. And it is vitally important, brothers and sisters, that we have a right understanding of the cross of Christ, of what happened on the cross, of the price that was paid that we might live. We have an opportunity this morning to go deep into this concept, this doctrine of the cross, and we will take a journey together. Uh, We will go down into that well and we will go deep into it and try to gather together for us some essence of what happened on the cross to the impeccable son of man and I hope and I know that as our view of our understanding of the cross grows our hearts are more given our hearts are more given over in love, and in praise for Christ and what he did on our behalf. It's like, a, it's like if you go home today and, and your roommate or your, or your loved one tells you that somebody came by while you were out and they paid off one of your debts. How would you react? Well, I suppose it would depend on what debt was, was paid off. If they tell you it was your cell phone bill for that month, you're like, wow, that was pretty cool, 40, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, some of you 100 bucks, depending on what you got going on. You're like, that's cool, that's amazing. Wow, somebody paid, paid off a debt for, I mean, that's, that's legit. 
But imagine if it was your student loan debt or imagine if it was your mortgage, your mortgage debt. The reaction that you would have to that reality would be vastly greater. I mean, we're going to Disneyland. <laughs> Somebody came and paid off my mortgage or your student debt. You see how that, 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 that's the principle. That's how this works. As our view grows about what happened on the cross, our hearts are more given to praise for the one who paid the debt for us. And so I want us to consider that this morning. What was the debt that was paid? Our, our text is broken up into two parts. Verses 1 through 21a, I'm titling The Cry of His Affliction. The Cry of His Affliction. And verses 21b through the end of, the, of, the, of our chapter, the triumph of his grace. The triumph of his grace. The cry of his affliction. The triumph of his grace. Verses 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? What does it mean that Christ was forsaken? What, what does it mean that he was abandoned and deserted? I think of, I, I want to try to, 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 to feel the weight of that. And as I was thinking about how would I explain that or how would I, how would I capture the essence of what it meant that he was forsaken, I, I thought of, a, a, a thought popped in my mind of, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm of the generation, the left behind generation. And some of you, you're like, what left, what's left behind? Well, left behind was a book series that came out way back when. And it, and it, it really promoted this notion that there was going to be a rapture and that one day all the believers in the world would, would, would be raptured. They'd disappear. And all the true believers and all the ones that weren't and all the ones that were enemies of God, they would stay. And, and, and that was the generation that I grew up in. That was the, that was the prevailing thought. And, and I remember one day when I was uh, in middle school, I woke up. It was a Saturday morning. And I woke up and, you know, I got up, got out of my bed, went to the living room, went to the kitchen, and nobody was there. Typically my mom would be there. My mom wasn't there. That's weird. Went to my brother's room. My brother always slept in, so I go in my brother's room, open the door. My brother's not there. I'm like, what in the world? You know, <laughs> the, the little thought saying, uh-oh, you know, it, wait a second, hold on a second. Where, why, where is everybody? Went to my parents' room. No, parents weren't there. Now I'm starting, to, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to panic because I have this idea that, you know, there's a rapture coming at some point, and, you know, I want to be one of those members who are raptured up to, be, to, 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 to leave this place. And where's my family at? And, and so I'm starting to freak out. I'm starting, I'm starting to feel like I was deserted, that I, that, that I, that I missed the boat, that I've been left behind. And, and the fear sets in, and I'm starting to panic, and we had a really good neighbor friends. And I was like, man, I got one more place that they could be, and if they're not there, then it's, it, this is true. Like, I was left behind. I've been forsaken. I've been abandoned. And there was, in that moment, there was nothing worse that could happen to me in all the world than to be left behind and forsaken and abandoned. And I went across the, 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 the way to my neighbors, and my parents and my brother were there. They were doing breakfast. I don't even know why. And nobody, nobody bothered to notify me. And the relief. I never felt a sense of relief like that, that I experienced in that moment, to be, for, to be left behind, to be forsaken. I was in China once taking, uh, on a trip, taking Bibles across the border from Hong Kong into China. And we'd go at night, and we'd fill up a suit uh, underneath our clothes of Bibles, and we'd go across the border because that's when the customs weren't going to be uh, enforcing or, or too particular about who crosses the border. And we, we'd go into the middle of the night, and we'd, 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 we'd fan out across the city, and we'd pass out Bibles and tracts. 
And on our way back early in the morning, two or three o'clock in the morning, there's one way to get back into the Hong Kong port that, or the Hong Kong border crossing that we were at, and it's a bridge. And on that bridge, as we're walking, the missionaries will tell us, you might see something on this bridge. You might see some kids on the bridge panhandling, begging for, for food and money, et cetera. Just, you just don't give them anything. You just, you can't. You just can't give them anything. And we're like, all right, whatever. So we, we walk across the bridge. I'm a teenager at this point. And, and, and in, the, in, the, in the distance, I see, you know, there's, there's a gaggle of, of young of kids. And they're kind of all huddled up in, the, in one side of the bridge. And, and as we get closer, they start to descend upon us because we're the only, I mean, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. We're the only people there. And they gather around me because I was kind of the one out front. And, and as I got closer, I realized it was, it was children holding babies. And, and, and they're shaking the babies like this. And the babies' heads were like lopping back and forth. I was like, man, that doesn't look right. And, and as they got closer, I realized there's children holding babies and the babies were dead. And the children were, 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 were street children. And, and I come to find out that these street children have been abandoned by their parents, left to, to roam the streets by themselves, exposed to all the evilness and wickedness of men. And wicked men had gathered up these group of children and forced them to do, to beg and panhandle and hold dead babies so that they could get money from the, from the, from the tourists that are crossing the border to go back into Hong Kong. What does it mean to be abandoned? What does it mean to be forsaken, to be deserted? I mean, we get some semblance of it in these stories, but we can't even grasp the, 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 the essence of that. It is so difficult to grasp the essence of what it meant that Christ was abandoned by the Father. And look what he says. He says in verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But then he realizes something. He remembers something in verse 3 and 4. What is he, verse 3 through 5. What, is, what does he remember? Yet, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. He, he's recalling the promises of God. He's recalling the character of God. He feels like he has been forsaken. But then he says, but hold on a second. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and were delivered. You always came through for your people. I'm feeling forsaken. But I know that you've always come through. I know that you've always been faithful. So what? there's a contradiction here. There's, there, there's something that doesn't comport. God's faithfulness, always. Yet the forsakenness of the Son of Man. What's, what's going on here? What's going on here is found in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. What does it mean that he is a worm? This is evocative language. This is the Psalms. This is supposed to elicit emotion and intensity and thoughts of, of just intense thoughts. But I am a worm. Where does a worm live? A worm lives in the ground. And what does a worm eat? A worm eats dirt. It's this, it's this image that this image of of filth and 
dirt and lowliness below a, a man trampled upon by men, a, a worm, a weak and insignificant thing, a dirty thing. Paul says he made, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Christ, when in, in this verse, but I am a worm, it, it's supposed to draw us to the reality that Jesus became sin, that he became sin for us. And what does it mean? It's such an elusive thing to consider that Jesus became sin. I, I struggled with this. How do you communicate this idea that he became a worm? I heard something from Brother R.C. Sproul many, many years ago that came to my mind during this time and it was recounted by Brother Paul Washer. And it was a it was, it was an idea that let us look in the Old Testament and let us try to ascertain just some semblance of the meaning of what it meant that Jesus became a worm. In particular, that he became a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the way I want to do this, I want us to take a little journey and consider what does it mean that Christ became a worm, that he became a curse, that he became sin. To start, I want us to look at the Beatitudes, and I want us to, to consider the Beatitudes from the other side. Blessed, the blessed are granted the kingdom of heaven. The cursed are refused entry. The blessed are recipients of divine comfort. The curse are objects of divine wrath. The blessed inherit the land. The cursed are cut off from it. The blessed are satisfied. The cursed are miserable and wretched. The blessed receive mercy. The cursed are condemned without pity. The blessed see God. The cursed are cut off from his presence. The blessed are sons and daughters of God. The cursed are disavowed, disowned, in disgrace. When, uh, when Moses was leading the tribe of Israel through the desert after the Exodus, he took them to a place of two mountains, Mount Gedesim and Mount Ebal. And he separated the tribe of Israel. Half went to Mount Gedesim and half went to Mount Ebal. And on these two mountains, he was, they were to proclaim the blessings and the curses. The blessings for the ones who always obeyed the law of God and the curses for the lawbreakers. And in Mount Gedesim, they were to pronounce the blessings. And in Mount Ebal, they were to pronounce the curses. The curses that would fall on the head of the lawbreaker. These are the curses. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father can be thought to have replied, the Lord, the Lord, your God damns you. The Lord sends upon you curses, confusion and rebuke until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. The Lord smites you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. And you will grope at noon as a blind man gropes in the darkness with none to save you. 
The Lord delights over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The heavens which is over you shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. You will be a horror, a proverb, and a taunt for all the people. Let all these curses come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he has commanded you. Christ became a curse on that tree. He became considered the lawbreaker. That was pronounced, the curses that were pronounced here in Mount Ebal were pronounced upon him. And he was cursed as one who dishonors his father and mother, who moves his neighbor's boundary marker and misleads a blind man on the road. He was cursed as one who distorts the justice due an alien, an orphan, and a widow. He was cursed as one who is guilty of every manner of immorality and perversion, who wounds his neighbor in secret and accepts a bribe to strike down the innocent. He was cursed as a father who abuses his children or a mother who practices neglect. He was cursed as one who lies and cheats and steals, who takes advantage of the weak and exploits power for their own gain. He was cursed as one who does not conform to the words of the law by doing them. We got to understand something, guys. When, when he was on that tree, when he was being cursed by God, these things, these these despicable things that we embody as sinful humans, he was considered to be the one who had done all of those things. He was the lawbreaker. He was the idol worshiper. David says how blessed it is for those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Yet on the cross, the sins of all of us were imputed to Christ. And it was exposed before God and men. He was placarded, made a spectacle. The transgressions he bore were not forgiven. And the sins he carried were not covered. If a man is considered blessed by having all of his iniquity forgiven, then Christ was cursed beyond measure because all of the iniquity of all of us was imputed to him. When we say imputed, we don't mean that he became sinner. We say that it was placed upon him. When we say imputed righteousness, we're saying that Christ's righteousness is placed upon us, that we're considered by the Father righteous. And in that moment, the Son was considered by the Father to be the lawbreaker, to be the covenant breaker. And for this reason, as it states in Deuteronomy 29, what will happen to the covenant breaker? The anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity, 
from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. In number six, we have this beautiful priestly blessing by Aaron. It says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. This beautiful, beautiful reality that is given to the, to the law keeper. It's given to the, to the family member of God. This was what happened to the Christ in order for that to become a reality for us. The Lord curse you and give you over to destruction. The Lord take the light of his presence from you and condemn you. The Lord turn his face from you and fill you with misery. Christ was cursed. He became a curse for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And there are some preachers and there are some churches around this world that will teach a gospel that is contrary to this. And they'll, they'll scoff at the notion that one man could suffer, for the, for the, could suffer the penalty for other people. That this idea of penal substitution. Some will even go so far as to call it cosmic child abuse. That the father would, would ever do something like this to his only begotten son. As though the son was an involuntary participant in this, in this great endeavor. But that is not the case. That is not orthodox. That is not historical Christianity. Historical Christianity is the son willingly went to the tree. The son willingly drank the cup of God's wrath. The son was in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, may this cup pass from me. But he resolved in that moment to say, not my will, but your will be done, my father. There's a Puritan named John Flavel who has this beautiful, imagined conversation that happened between the father and the son in eternity past as it relates to the state of fallen humanity. It's a supposed conversation. I think it beautifully articulates that the Father and the Son together in concert, in perfect unity, made a plan to gather a people out of fallen humanity to redeem them and to bring them into their family, and to live with them forever on a new earth. And, 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 and I want to read this to you. And it goes like this. It starts with the Father. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them, or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son. O oh, my Father, such is my love too and my pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, 
I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all their bills that I might see what they owe thee. He's saying bring all the sin from the time that they were first sinners to the time of their, their last breath. Bring in all the bills. I want to see all of it, he's saying. That I might know what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in. That there may be no after reckoning with them. He's saying, bring them all in. And on that tree, I will pay for every single one of their crimes. That there will be no after reckonings. There will be never again a moment where you have to come to them in justice. At my hand shall they, thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father replies, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. And listen to this. I am able to discharge it. I am able to discharge it. There's only been one person who could utter those words. The thrice holy son of God. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all of my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Behold, lady, behold brothers and sisters, Behold the love of God for sinful men. Behold the love of God for you and for me. That he would undertake and he would drink the cup of God's wrath that is meant for you and for me. And that he would do it for the glory of God to demonstrate God's attributes of loving kindness, grace, and mercy. And that he would do it for us out of his great love for us, that while we were yet helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He became a worm. He became cursed. And he was buried. And notice in our text, there's a shift in verse 21. The second part of 21. And it says this, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There was deliverance. There was deliverance. He was rescued. He was raised again from the dead three days later, vindicated before men and angels alike that he has always been the impeccable son of God. And look what the psalmist says in verse 21 through 26. He's, it's almost as though he starts to go wild. He says, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear God, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Why? Verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Here we have in this, in, in verse 21b through 26, we have two things I want us to notice that are just impactful for us this morning. Number one, the testimony of the deliverance of God being done in the midst of the congregation. Why is that so important? Why is it so important? In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's this. That's what we're doing here right now. We are telling of the name of Jesus, of the triumphs of his grace in the midst of the congregation. We are recalling the great deliverance that happened on that tree. And we are recalling the little deliverances that happened throughout our life as Christ becomes conformed in our hearts. And we're doing so in the context of the great congregation, in the context of the local church. Brothers, sisters, we need each other. When we come into this room on Sunday mornings, man, the energy starts to flow. It's like the atoms start to move around and bouncing off each other. We start heating up. We start heating up. And then we go out into this cold world, and we're bombarded with all kinds of narratives and all kinds of worldviews contrary to the gospel and all kinds of struggles and, and, and all kinds of, of temptation and all these things. And we start to get a little colder. We start to kind of lose some of that heat, some of that, some of that fire that we left, we left our Sunday gatherings just, just on fire and ready to just see God's name be glorified amongst the nations. And we start to lose some of that. We need to be continually meeting with one another, brothers, sisters. We need to be, during the week, we need to be meeting together. It can't just be a Sunday to Sunday thing. We need to be telling the stories of the triumphs of Christ's grace. And our testimonies, and our day-to-day, and how he's working in our lives, in every facet. We need to be sharing that with one another. That's the first thing I wanted you to see. The second thing is, look at the posture of the heart of, the, of verse 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. The afflicted one, that's the one that's crying out at night, Lord, deliver me from this temptation. Deliver me from this trial. Deliver me from this persecution. Deliver me from this situation. It's the humble of heart. It's the one that cries out, that understands their great need for God in their life and their great need for God's intervention. It's the meek. It's the humble. Those are the ones who have the testimony. The proud, they need nothing from God. There is no testimony there. It's the humble. It's the afflicted. 
It's the, one that are, the ones that are crying out to God. Are you crying out to God in the midst of your affliction? Or are you trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps? Shoulder on. May we be people who recognize our great need for deliverance in all the myriad of ways, in the day-to-day, in the little things. Lord God, I need your deliverance to treat my wife as she ought to be treated. I need your deliverance to give me patience with my kids. I need your deliverance to help me to be honest in my schoolwork. I need your deliverance to help me be bold and full of grace and love in my workplace. I need you, Lord. And then when he answers, and he gives us eyes to see that, then we come back to the great gathering, the great congregation, and we tell, we tell that good news of deliverance. And the people who hear that word, man, they get stoked. The fires get stoked. The Spirit of God begins to move. And change happens. And heavenly outlooks become, to become, become confirmed in our minds and our eyes. And we go forth from this place that much more equipped to weather the deluge of persecution, temptation, and all the rest that bombards us. We move on. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Notice here that the missionary heart of God. He says, all the ends. Everywhere. Shall do what? Notice shall remember. What does that mean? All the ends of the earth shall remember. Remember what? Remember that there's a God in heaven. Remember that he is holy. The the, the conscience that God has placed in our hearts, the common grace that he bestows to us through his creation, through the created order, that we would remember that there is a God who is worthy of our worship. All the ends of the earth one day shall do that. This is a promise. This is a guarantee. And after they remember, what will they do? What does the text say? They will remember and then they will turn to the Lord. What is repentance? This is repentance. This is repentance. They will remember and they will repent. They will turn from their ways, the living as their own God, and they will turn to the one true God in repentance and faith, acknowledging him for who he is, submitting themselves to, be, to have been lawbreakers, and receiving by faith the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And here we have verse, uh, this, the last part of verse 27. And all the families of the nation shall worship. Shall worship. Just like we saw the psalmist begin to go wild in worship after the deliverance that happened. The ones who experience God's deliverance in Christ will worship. There is no other natural response. The news is too great. It's too fantastic to consider that one would take the sins from another and give that one person, the sinner, their righteousness. It's too good to be true. Yet it is. And they will worship before you. Why? 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
There is only one king in this world. And that king is Jesus. And he rules over the nations. And he is sovereign over all. Verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. The gospel of Jesus Christ is inclusive of all stations. Look what it says. All the prosperous, the rich, the wealthy. The gospel is even for them. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. This is imagery denoting people who are in lowly states, poor and weak, the feeble of the world. They too shall be a part of this great congregation. And even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now this has been, there's two ways to look at this, this category of people. One way is to think of them as those who are too infirm to keep themselves alive. I don't, I don't feel like that one is, the, is, is, is correct. I want to go with a second way to interpret this, and that is the ones who are trying to keep themselves alive on their own power. The ones who are trying to be their own gods. The ones who are trying to exalt themselves up as a center of their universe. All of those people also will recognize the sovereignty of the king. And one day every knee will bow. And some will bow because of the grace that has been given to you and to me. And others will bow, as the psalmist says, because their kneecaps will be broken by the one who rules the nation with a rod of iron. All will bow. All will bow before the king, for he is worthy of every one of our praise. He goes on, verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall, proclaim, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This word posterity, it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And in the, in the King James version of this text, it says the seed. And so that got me thinking. I started doing a little research on this idea of the seed. And uh, I'm not a farmer, but uh, <clears throat> seed saving is a technique done by farmers from the very beginning of farming, where they would gather together a few choice seeds from the harvest. And they wouldn't plant them. And, they, and they'd keep them for next year's harvest. And, 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 and when, they, when they were inspecting the seeds, they would look for certain characteristics. Conformity to the ideal. Conformity to what it means to be that type of a seed. And they would save those seeds. And those saved seeds were of immense value because everything was predicated on those seeds staying good so that there would be a harvest for the next year. What does this text mean? This text means in verse 30 and 31 that God at every generation is going to gather up a people for himself to ensure that his gospel untainted, 
undefiled by the whims of men, is going to endure to the next generation, and then the next generation, and then the next generation, until the Son of Man comes back with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet sound of God. And he gathers up his people. He gathers them up. And they're there on that day, on that great wedding banquet, where the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, the marriage of the Lamb with his church, and they will be presented to him on that day, and they will be clothed in righteousness, befitting a wedding banquet of that nature. And they will cry out in worship to the Lamb that was slain on their behalf, and Christ will be glorified. And on that day, there will be members of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And we can be assured of that. And we start to feel like this world is, is twirling down a toilet and is going off into an abyss and chaos is raining. Fake news is raining. Lies are raining. This whole world is just, is just tumbling into an oblivion. We can hold true to the reality that there is a king on the throne who is sovereign over all, and he will ensure. He will ensure that his gospel is successful, is not thwarted, will endure. Posterity shall serve him. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to future generations, that he has done it. That he has done it is the same word as, as saying it is finished in the Hebrew. It is finished. The whole book of Psalms, guys, brothers and sisters, is, is a movement. And it's culminating. And it, and it moves throughout the whole, the whole book. And it culminates in the last three chapters of the book. And there, there's a movement. There's a progression of thought going through the whole psalm, the whole Psalter. And it culminates in the praise of God. So I want to end t- uh, this morning with, with reading Psalm 148, 149, and 150. As, as the church is gathered, and as they're, they're presented to the Lamb, and the psalmist says in, in, in chapter 148, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him from the heights above. Praise him, all you angels. Praise him, all you heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. And all of you billions and billions of shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? Because he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever and he gave a decree that will never pass away. So praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, whales and all you ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, flying, flying birds and creeping things. You kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers of the earth, you young men and maidens, 
you old men and children. Let them all praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. And his splendor is above the heavens and the earth. And he has raised up for his people a horn, that is salvation. The praise of all the saints of Israel, the people close to his heart, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them make music to him with dancing, with a tambourine and harp. For listen, let this sink in. The Bible says that the Lord takes delight in his people. He takes delight in his people because they have his son's righteousness. He takes delight in his people. Because his son bore their wrath, he takes delight in his people. And he crowns the humble with salvation. So let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with fetters and nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all the saints. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a harp and lyre. Praise him with a tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the flute. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.